Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello, Sixpack family. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 119. Now that the presidential pretender and Judas Catholic Joe Biden has been in the White House for about three months, we can all see how this demonically destructive regime is destroying America. So we're going to once again focus on politics from a Catholic perspective. Now I think in order to best begin, I want to expose the six-pack family to someone who was a genuine modern-day patriot. For reasons I'm not even sure of, I never bothered to join the Knights of Columbus until we'd moved to the Archdiocese of St. Louis. Regardless of the reason, I was really happy to become a Knight and affiliate myself with this premier Catholic organization. When it was time to receive my third degree, I joined a group of 50 or 60 other men from different councils. No one had told me what to expect prior to the event, but I was told at the event that we were going to be examined on our proficiency in catechesis. To my great disappointment and embarrassment, only three of the 50 to 60 men present could answer the most basic questions. Shamefully, men asked to name the mysteries of the rosary couldn't even do that. After the degree work was finished and it was time for socializing, I began asking some of my fellow participants about the examination. Not only were they not embarrassed by their inability to answer questions, but several actually expressed how difficult the examination was. They believed the questions they were asked were advanced. That was when I decided that the evangelistic work I'd done for 30 years needed to shift focus from making converts and reverts to helping Catholics in the pew to learn, understand, and live the Catholic faith. In a nutshell, that's the whole reason why this apostolate exists. After all, you can't live what you don't know. Toward this end, everything I do except my books is absolutely free. Until the China virus lockdowns, I'd always been able to depend on sales of my books to cover increasingly expensive monthly overhead. Unfortunately, that's no longer the case. Please, help me help other Catholics with the gift of this apostolate. Just click on the link in my show notes that says, Help Keep Joe Sixpack the Every Catholic Guy Apostolate Alive. If you can, please check the box to make yours a monthly gift. If you don't feel safe making your gift online, please send your check made out to Cassock Media. I place the address in my show notes. And I promise that you'll be remembered in my daily hour of reparation. Most of you are too young for this man's name to mean anything to you, but I grew up on him. His name was Paul Harvey. This man influenced two generations of Americans, and he was largely responsible for the constitutionalist conservative movement. He was so influential that there couldn't have been a Ronald Reagan without him. He was the Rush Limbaugh of his day. Paul Harvey was born in Tulsa in 1918. He was the son of a cop who was killed by robbers in 1921. Harvey served in World War II, then moved to Chicago. 
Paul was a national radio broadcaster who was loved by millions. His most famous and longest-running show was Paul Harvey News and Comment. We always knew his much-anticipated show was about to begin when we heard his familiar and distinctive voice say, Hello, Americans, stand by for news. I can't imitate Harvey very well. His second most popular and well-known show was a short five- or six-minute history broadcast called The Rest of the Story. These historic episodes were eclectic in their content, and they were all captivatingly interesting. You can find many of them today on YouTube, and they're easy to find. I urge all the Six-Pack family to listen to them. You'll be glad you did. Four years before his death in 2009, Harvey was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President George Bush. Rush Limbaugh, who was also influenced by Harvey, certainly deserved the Presidential Medal of Freedom, but Paul Harvey towered over even the legendary Limbaugh. Without the childhood influence of Paul Harvey, I might not be the staunch patriot I am today. He influenced my every thought and feeling about America, our Constitution, and the culture on the basis of natural law. Since no one was better at standing up for America and true social justice for Americans, it seemed like a no-brainer to have me have Paul Harvey reach out to us from the 60s and 70s to set the stage and tone for our next several episodes. The first cut of Paul Harvey I want to play will make you appreciate our founding fathers like never before. Let's listen. Americans, the how and the why of our beloved republic are so much better known and understood than the who. The United States of America was born in 1776, but it was conceived 169 years before that. The earliest settlers had watered the New World with much sweat, they had built substantial holdings for themselves, for their families. And when the time came to separate themselves from a tyranny an ocean away, at best it meant starting all over again after the ravages of war. Researching what you're about to hear gave a whole new dimension to my reverence for our nation's first citizens. All others of the world's revolutions before and since were initiated by men who had nothing to lose nothing to lose. Our founders had everything to lose and nothing to gain, except one thing. Hello Americans, I'm Paul Harvey. You remember the cherry tree fiction a long time after you have forgotten the more earth-shaking history-making episodes in the life of George Washington. You have misplaced in your memory the details of Ben Franklin's statesmanship, but you remember his flying a kite. Joyce Kilmer was a great military hero. But the only thing you personally recall about him is his poetic tribute to trees. Maybe of this current decade, that which will be remembered best will not be its wars and its moon rockets or its crumbling frontiers or the giants who lived and died. Maybe all that will survive to linger in the day-by-day -day vocabulary of generations yet unborn may be the, the songs of a Memphis minstrel or the reincarnation of electric automobiles. But for any eve of the 4th of July... 
I, Paul Harvey, do herewith bequeath unto you something to remember. You may not be able to quote one line from the Declaration of Independence at this moment. Henceforth, you'll always be able to quote at least one line. It's in the last paragraph where you will recall when I remind you, it says, We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. In the Pennsylvania State House that's now called Independence Hall in Philadelphia, the best men from each of the colonies sat down together. This was a very fortunate hour in our nation's history, one of those rare occasions in the lives of men when we had greatness to spare. These were men of means, well-educated, 24 were lawyers and jurists, nine were farmers, owners of large plantations. On June 11, a committee sat down to draw up a Declaration of Independence. We were going to tell the British fatherland, no more rule by redcoats. Below the dam of ruthless foreign rule, the stream of freedom was running shallow and muddy. And we were going to light a fuse to dynamite that dam. This pact, as Burke later put it, was a partnership between the living and the dead and the yet unborn. There was no bigotry. There was no demagoguery in this group. All had shared hardships. Jefferson finished a draft of the document in 17 days. Congress adopted it in July, and so much is familiar history. But now, King George III had denounced all rebels in America as traitors. Punishment for treason was hanging. The names now so familiar to you from the several signatures on that Declaration of Independence, the names were kept secret for six months for each knew the full meaning of that magnificent last paragraph in which his signature pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor. Fifty-six men placed their names beneath that pledge. Fifty-six men knew when they signed that they were risking everything. They knew if they won this fight, the best they could expect would be years of hardship in a struggling nation. And if they lost they'd face a hangman's rope. But they signed the pledge. And here is the documented fate of that gallant 56. Carter Braxton of Virginia, wealthy planter, trader, saw his ships swept from the seas. To pay his debts, he lost his home and all of his properties and died in rags. Thomas Lynch, Jr., who signed that pledge, was a third-generation rice grower, aristocrat, large plantation owner. After he signed, his health failed. His wife and he set out for France to regain his failing health. Their ship never got to France, was never heard from again. Thomas McKean of Delaware was so harassed by the enemy that he was forced to move his family five times in five months. He served in Congress without pay, his family in poverty and in hiding. Vandals looted the properties of Ellery and Clymer and Hall and Gwinnett and Walton and Hayward and Rutledge and Middleton. Thomas Nelson, Jr. of Virginia, raised $2 million on his own signature to provision our allies, the French fleet. After the war, he personally paid back the loans, wiped out his entire estate, and he was never reimbursed by his government. In the final battle for Yorktown, he, Nelson, urged General Washington to fire on his, Nelson's own home, which was occupied by Cornwallis. It was destroyed. Thomas Nelson, Jr. had pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor.
The Hessians seized the home of Francis Hopkinson of New Jersey. Francis Lewis had his home and everything destroyed, his wife imprisoned. She died within a few months. Richard Stockton, who signed that declaration, was captured, mistreated, his health broken to the extent that he died at 51. His estate was pillaged. Thomas Hayward Jr. was captured when Charleston fell. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside while she was dying. Their 13 children fled in all directions for their lives. His fields and grist mill were laid waste. For more than a year he lived in forests and caves and returned home after the war to find his wife dead, his children gone, his properties gone, and he died a few weeks later of exhaustion and a broken heart. Lewis Morris saw his land destroyed, his family scattered. Philip Livingston died within a few months from the hardships of the war. John Hancock, history remembers best due to a quirk of fate rather than anything he stood for, that great sweeping signature attesting to his vanity towers over the others. One of the wealthiest men in New England. And yet he stood outside Boston one terrible night of the war. And he said, burn Boston, though it makes John Hancock a beggar, if the public good requires it. So he too lived up to the pledge. Of the 56, few were long to survive. Five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes from Rhode Island to Charleston sacked, looted, occupied by the enemy or burned. Two lost their sons in the army. One had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 died in the war from its hardships or from its more merciful bullets. I don't know what impression you had had of the men who met that summer in Philadelphia. But I think it's important that we remember this about them. They were not poor men. They were not wild-eyed pirates. These were men of means. They were rich men, most of them, and had enjoyed much ease and luxury in their personal living. Not hungry men, certainly not terrorists, not irresponsible malcontents, not fanatical incendiaries. These men were prosperous men, wealthy landowners. They were substantially secure in their prosperity. They had everything to lose. But they considered liberty, and this is as much as I shall say of it. They learned that liberty is so much more important than security, that they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And they fulfilled their pledge. They paid the price. And freedom was born. Under presidential pretender Biden, police officers are under attack. I certainly don't want to live in a country without local law enforcement, and I'm sure you don't either. But if Joe Biden and his merry band of miscreants get their way, cops will be replaced by social workers and shrinks. Paul Harvey understood decades ago what police officers are and why we need them. Let's listen again. A policeman is a composite of what all men are, I guess, a mingling of saint and sinner, dust and deity. Called statistics, wave the fan over stinkers, underscore instances of dishonesty and brutality because they are news.
What that really means is that they are exceptional. They are unusual. They are not commonplace. Buried under the froth is the fact. And the fact is that less than one half of one percent of policemen misfit that uniform. And that is a better average than you'd find among clergymen. What is a policeman? He of all men is at once the most needed and the most wanted. A strangely nameless creature who is sir to his face and pig or worse behind his back. He must be such a diplomat that he can settle differences between individuals so that each will think he won. But if a policeman is neat, he's conceited. If he's careless, he's a bum. If he's pleasant, he's a flirt. If he's not, he's a grouch. He must make instant decisions which would require months for a lawyer. But if he hurries, he's careless. If he's deliberate, he's lazy. He must be first to an accident, infallible with a diagnosis. He must be able to start breathing, stop bleeding, tie splints, and above all, be sure the victim goes home without a limp or expect to be sued. The police officer must know every gun, draw on the run, and hit where it doesn't hurt. He must be able to whip two men twice his size and half his age without damaging his uniform and without being brutal. If you hit him, he's a coward. If he hits you, he's a bully. A policeman must know everything and not tell. He must know where all of the sin is and not partake. The policeman from a single human hair must be able to describe the crime, the weapon, the criminal, and tell you where the criminal is hiding, but... If he catches the criminal, he's lucky. If he doesn't, he's a dunce. If he gets promoted, he has political pull. If he doesn't, he's a dullard. The policeman must chase bum leads to a dead end, stake out ten nights to tag one witness who saw it happen but refuses to remember. He runs files and writes reports until his eyes ache to build a case against some felon who will get dealed out by a shameless Seamus or an honorable who isn't honorable. The policeman must be a minister, a social worker, a diplomat, a tough guy, and a gentleman. And of course he'll have to be a genius because he'll have to feed a family on a policeman's salary. Under President Trump, our military became the strongest of any nation's national defense in the history of the world. And because of that, there was less need of their skills than at any other time in history. But the Biden regime hates our military and is trying to destroy it from within by turning it into a panty social experiment that's being held in contempt and without fear by our enemies. The political left has a fantasy idea of what the American fighting man is, but Paul Harvey understood them perfectly. Let's listen. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a protector. So God made a service member. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, hump pack, work all day performing duties, hump pack again, eat chow, then go to foreign lands and stay through countless holidays, birthdays, weddings, graduations, and funerals. So God made a service member. God said, I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a wounded brother or sister and watch them die. Then dry their eyes and say, I need to stay focused. I need somebody who can put aside their own needs, give the ultimate sacrifice when duty calls, who can go a solid week without sleep and eat only once a day, who during wartime and heated battle will selfishly fight countless hours for their country's freedom, and then, painting from battle fatigue, do it all over again. So God made a service member. God said, I need somebody strong enough to watch their fellow service member fall, but yet gentle enough to share what little rations they have with victims of war who will put aside their own safety for however long it takes to get civilians out of harm's way. So God made a service member. It had to be somebody strong, stable, and fierce, and when it came to their duty, would not sway. Somebody to sweat, hunger, not sleep, ignore pain, and fight and pay, and hold emotions, and stand proud, 
and take a bullet for their country. Somebody who could bond a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing, who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes when their son or daughter says that he or she wants to serve their country just like mom or dad did. So God made a service member. For many decades, the American farmer suffered under foolish politicians of both parties, feckless elected officials who never produced anything. Yet they seem to think they know more about farming than farmers do, although these hard-working American farmers occupy less than 5% of the world's land mass and have been feeding 60% of the globe's population for 70 years. The suffering of the American farmer began coming to an end under President Donald Trump, but the communist traitors known as the Biden administration want to reverse the Trump policies to the point that the American farmer will be worse off than before, all of them being reduced to slavery. Paul Harvey understood American farmers, and he appreciated them. He believed in American farmers so much that he saw them as a direct creation of God. Let's listen. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. I need somebody with arms strong enough to wrestle a calf and yet gentle enough to deliver his own grandchild. Somebody to call hogs, tame cantankerous machinery, come home hungry, have to wait lunch until his wife's done feeding visiting ladies, then tell the ladies to be sure and come back real soon and mean it. So God made a farmer. God said I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die and dry his eyes and say maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make harness out of hay wire, feed sacks, and shoe scraps, who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday noon and then pain in from tractor back, put in another 72 hours. So God made a farmer. God had to have somebody willing to ride the ruts at double speed to get the hay in ahead of the rain clouds and yet stop in midfield and race to help when he sees the first smoke from a neighbor's place. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink-combed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. It had to be somebody who'd plow deep and straight and not cut corners, somebody to seed, weed, feed, breed, and rake and disc and plow and plant and tie the fleece and strain the milk and replenish the self-feeder and finish a hard week's work with a five-mile drive to church. Somebody who'd bail a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing, who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says that he wants to spend his life doing what dad does. So God made a farmer. There are actually two or three other cuts of Paul Harvey I want to play, but that would make this episode overly long. No doubt I'll play them sometime in the future, especially the one on taxation and socialism. For now, I'm going to restrict myself to simply one more. It's one from 1965 that all of America should have paid very close attention to then, but we didn't. It's called If I Were the Devil. If I Were the Devil. If I were the Prince of Darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness. And I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree. V. So I'd set about however necessary to take over the United States. 
I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve. Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old, I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings... I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious and what'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Paul Harvey was a great American patriot. He wasn't a Catholic, but he appreciated Orthodox Catholic moral teaching. He knew that authentic Catholic morality was without question the best for the individual and for our country. The other day I had a young person tell me he didn't know who John Wayne was. John Wayne was a great patriot, but his claim to fame was movies. I thought that if this young man didn't know who the Duke was, he certainly wouldn't have any idea who Paul Harvey was. So I wanted to make sure you knew who Paul Harvey was. By introducing you to him in this episode, I've also set the tone for the next several episodes. I'm going after Biden and his leftist lunatics with a passion. You really won't want to miss it. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to the Daily Wire. 
TV host Tucker Carlson called out the Department of Defense for placing too much priority on worrying about gender and diversity in the armed forces while China asserts its dominance. Carlson had taken issue with new uniforms designed for women who were seven to nine months pregnant. The Pentagon responded by accusing Carlson of using his show to denigrate the contributions of women in the military. What morons. No, 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 no. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick number four. Hats off to Catholic News Agency. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith clarified that the Catholic Church cannot give a blessing to unions of persons of the same sex because God cannot bless sin. The CDF stated that it is not licit to impart a blessing on relationships or partnerships, even stable, that involve sexual activity outside of marriage, as is the case of unions between persons of the same sex. The ruling was approved for publication by Pope Francis. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick number three. Hats off to Catholic Vote. Many prominent Catholic promoters of the LGBT movement are decrying the Vatican's statement that reaffirmed the Church's teaching on marriage. Most Catholic media organizations recognized it as merely a reminder of immemorial church teachings. To Catholic public figures who have invested themselves in the promotion of the LGBT movement, however, the Vatican document represented an official and unwelcome reprimand of their work. Father James Martin has made a name for himself promoting what he calls LGBTQ Catholics. Martin described the Vatican's decision as profoundly discouraging. Again, what a moron. You're an idiot! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick number number two. two. Hats off to the Daily Wire. Two major media outlets have issued corrections of a December phone call between then-President Donald Trump and Francis Watson, a top Georgia elections investigator. The Washington Post and CNN reported that Trump urged Watson to find the fraud and that she would be a national hero. But according to an audio recording of the call obtained by the Wall Street Journal, the president said neither line. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick number one. Hats off to the Washington Examiner. President Biden is working on a proposal that would be the most significant tax increase in 30 years. Under the plan, corporate taxes would increase from 21% to 28%. There would be additional taxes for those earning more than $400,000 annually. This will destroy the economy. What? You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes.
I am hard, but I am fair. It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp with your drill sergeant, Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before. This boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill Sergeant Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack. Our opening story may be a little bit politically incorrect, Not that a lack of political correctness has ever stopped me or even really mattered to me, but it's a wonderful story to highlight the topic of this week's Catholic boot camp. Back in the days when Canada was being settled like the American frontier, a Catholic Indian made his confession to the Jesuit missionary who ministered to the tribe. They called him Black Robes. The Indian, named John Baptist at his baptism, accused himself of stealing two dollars from a wealthy man who had no religion. The priest told John he'd have to make restitution, so John set out immediately to return the money. John approached the rich man at his home. He said, Me rob you. Black robe tell me give back money. What money? asked the rich man. Two dollars me stole from you. John Baptist, bad man. All right, don't steal again, John. Good day. Good day, not enough. Me want other thing. What else do you want? Me want what you call, uh, yes, receipt. A receipt? What do you want with a receipt? Did the black robe tell you to get a receipt? No, black robe tell me nothing. Then why do you want it? You stole from me, returned the money. Isn't that enough? You old, me young. You die first, me die later. Me knock on door of heaven. Great Chief St. Peter, open and say, That you, John Baptist? What you want? Me answer, Me want to go in house of great spirit. And he tell me, But your sins? Me say, Black robe, forgive them. And St. Peter say, And what you stole from man with no religion, you pay back? Show receipt. Poor John Baptist in bad fix. No receipt. Have to gallop all over Black Pit below to find you. No religion, no heaven. John Baptist's comment about no religion, no heaven is poignant, but that isn't the topic of this boot camp. The whole point of this boot camp is what John went through to make his sin against the Seventh Commandment right. We're looking at the 7th and 10th commandments today. You shall not steal and you shall not covet your neighbor's goods, respectively. We'll begin with the 7th commandment. God has given everyone the right to private ownership so we can enjoy the fruits of our labors, live with the dignity due our humanity, and maintain a certain independence. Because of this natural right granted by God, the Seventh Commandment obliges us to respect the property of others, to keep our business agreements, and to pay our just debts. This commandment forbids stealing, robbery, cheating, contracting debts beyond our means, unjustly damaging the property of others, accepting bribes, and knowingly buying or receiving stolen goods. Stealing is a mortal sin if the thing stolen is of considerable value. 
However, stealing something of small value from a poor person can be a mortal sin. Stealing small amounts over a period of time could eventually become a mortal sin, if the accumulative amount becomes sufficiently large. Let's say a cashier at the supermarket gives you a dollar too much in change, and you decide to keep it. That would be a venial sin. Later, you drop that dollar into a blind beggar's cup, then someone else comes along and steals that dollar from his cup. That could be a mortal sin. If a bank teller manages to steal $5 from his till, then that would be a venial sin. But if he were to do this daily for an extended period of time, the amount could add up to a mortal sin. When in doubt, ask your priest. We're obligated to return stolen goods to the owner, whether we're the thief or not, whenever we're able to do so. If the rightful owner is dead, the property must be restored to his heirs. If there aren't any heirs, the property must be given to the poor or some other charitable purpose. If a thief can't restore all he's stolen, he must restore all he can. If he's used what is stolen, he must repair the damage done by restoring the equivalent. If he can't restore anything, he must at least pray for the person he's wrong. If poverty or some other circumstance prevents the thief from making restitution immediately, he must resolve to do so as soon as possible, and he must make an effort to fulfill that resolution. Restitution may be made secretly without letting the owner know restitution is being made. For instance, a money order can be sent with an alias, or a priest, who is pledged to secrecy, may be entrusted with the property to be restored. If we discover that something we purchase is stolen, we may not keep it. It must be returned to the rightful owner. It's also wrong to ask the owner to reimburse us for the money we spent on the stolen item. The only person we can demand payment from is the person who sold it to us. Then there's finders, keepers, losers, weepers. If we find an article of value, we have to make a reasonable effort to find the owner. The more valuable the item, the greater our obligation to locate the owner. If, however, after all our earnest efforts, we're unable to locate the owner, we may keep what we found. Borrowing is probably the most common sin against the Seventh Commandment. It's sinful to keep whatever we've borrowed beyond the length of time established or agreed upon with the owner. If no time has been established or agreed upon, we may not keep the borrowed item beyond what common sense and our conscience tells us is reasonable. If we unjustly damage the property of others, through carelessness, malice, incompetence, etc., we're obliged to either repair the damage or pay the amount of the damage so far as we're able. Cheating is probably the second most common sin against the Seventh Commandment. Some forms of cheating are negligence in working, tax evasion, false advertising, fraudulent contracts, false insurance claims, and copying in an examination. There are many more forms of cheating. These cover only a few, but it's our responsibility to develop a well-formed conscience so that we know without thinking to identify cheating and stealing. One form of stealing I've noticed that's common among Catholics is parishioners who light candles at one of the side altars and don't bother to pay for it. 
They seem to think that their Sunday donation to the collection box covers this. That simply isn't true. If the pastor has a collection box for candle money, then it's stealing not to pay for the candle you light. We should try to throw in a couple of extra bucks for people who want to light a candle but can't afford it, which is a good practice if you have poor people in your parish. Next week, we'll finish our examination of the 7th and 10th Commandments. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week, we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from St. Maria Goretti. She said, He loves, he hopes, he waits. Our Lord prefers to wait himself for the sinner for years rather than keep us waiting an instant. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. An old monk was dying. As was customary in monasteries, the dying priest's fellow religious came to his bedside to pray for him in his final agony. They heard him whispering the word, Book. One of the monks brought him his breviary and handed it to the dying monk. He shook his head slowly as if to say that this wasn't the book he wanted. Another brought him a Bible, thinking that this was surely the book he meant. But again he shook his head. Then they watched him fix his eyes with great love on the crucifix hanging on the opposite wall. The youngest of the brothers went to the crucifix, took it from the wall, and placed it in the hands of the dying priest. Tears filled his eyes as he pressed the cross to his heart, and with his last breath spoke these words, My book. In the crucifix, the good monk saw the image of the person of Jesus who loved him. You need to look often into this book of the crucifix, as the good monk must have done during his lifetime. You'll find three chapters in this book. Chapter 1, Who? Who is it that suffers? Chapter 2, What? What does he suffer? Chapter 3, Why? Why does he suffer? Study these chapters carefully, and you'll hate sin as the greatest evil in the world. You'll love Jesus as your greatest friend. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.